today, today we begin, we begin a sermon series on the Gospel of Matthew. This series will stretch all the way to Easter. If you recall, we've done this the last three years. In Christmas, we start in a gospel, and then we finish it uh, in Easter. So we won't read the entire thing, but we'll read some uh, important touchstones in the gospel, and then hopefully get us a, a better sense of what exactly Jesus is up to, why he came, what he's doing, who he is. So we begin today where Matthew himself begins, and that's with the genealogy of Jesus. Now let me warn you, this opening bit of Matthew's gospel is profound. Profoundly boring, at least that's how it seems on the surface. After all, today's scripture reading is pretty much just a list of old names that trace Jesus' lineage, his ancestors. Why on the world would anyone select this passage for preaching on a Sunday morning? Yes, these are Jesus' ancestors. I get it. But do we really have to read all the names aloud during worship? I might as well sing Rockabye Baby and watch you all doze off. However, that would be a shame because the opening bit of, Gospels, of Matthew's gospel is profound. It is profoundly rich with meaning that I believe God wants to communicate with us today. So, there's more than meets the eye in this family tree of Jesus, and we're going to peel back the layers and discover just how surprisingly relevant it is to our daily lives. Sound good? With that in mind, we turn our attention to the good news according to Matthew chapter 1. Before we read, let's pray for God's help. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food today, that it may nourish us in the ways of abundant life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. Here now the opening words of the New Testament. This is the good news, according to Matthew. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. Isn't this fun? Josiah, the father of Jeconia, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. It's kind of like a baseball game. Whenever something exciting happens, it's like, whoa, what's that? We're going to keep going. <laughs> After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconia was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eli Eliakim, 
Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eliazar, and Eliazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Boring or interesting? What do you think? Actually, that's not the right question. The right question is this. How exactly is this God's word for us this morning? For us who live in the 21st century, with 21st century problems and hopes and fears, how is this God's word for us and not just a litany of old names? The great discovery, as we dive in, is that Matthew is actually preaching the gospel, even through his genealogy. That's his intent. That's why he includes it for us. Matthew is announcing good, to, good news to us, even us gathered here right now. And he's doing it by drawing a family tree for Jesus. This good news begins with the first two words. When Matthew presses pen to paper, inspired by the Spirit of God, the first two Greek words he writes are this, biblos geneseos, biblos geneseos, biblos or Bible, can you hear it, book, geneseos or Genesis, beginning. The first two words in the New Testament literally are translated the book of Genesis. Now, the NRSV reads the account of the genealogy, and that's fair because what follows is the genealogy of Jesus, but it's much more than that. Matthew wants us to know that this is the book of Genesis. Isn't that fascinating? That's what the first, that's what the first book in the Old Testament is called, is it not? So what's the point here? Matthew is making a profound claim about the story of Jesus. According to Matthew, the story of Jesus ushers in a new genesis of the world, a new beginning, a new creation. The work of God in Jesus Christ, which we will discover throughout the Gospel of Matthew, this is God's way of recreating the world. This is the new genesis. Of Jesus Christ. So, a new reality has begun. It has entered human history with Jesus, and we are the benefactors. The reign of God, the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew calls it, it has broken into the world with the incarnation of God. And this is the most important beginning of all, the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. As scholar Dale Bruner writes, to Matthew's mind, the deepest beginning in history was not the birth of the world, but the birth of the world's Savior. And wouldn't you know, the wider world in which we live actually goes along with this claim, even if they don't believe it. Matthew's claim that Jesus is the new beginning of history, the vast majority of societies today go along with it. I'm sure of it. 
Do you know why I'm so confident about this? Because tomorrow night, people will gather around the world with family and friends, and we're going to count down together, right? We're going to say 10, 9, 8, and when we get to 1, after we get to 1, we'll say what? Happy New Year! And what year will it be? The year 2019. Why 2019? Because 2019 years ago, there was a man who came into the world, a man unlike any man before or after. This was a man who changed the world, a man who brought something into the world that was so remarkable that we just had to reset our calendars back to year one. This is the man about whom Matthew claimed the beginning of history is found in him. Jesus Christ is that man, and 2019 is the year of our Lord, even still. And whether they acknowledge Christ's lordship or not, billions of people from almost every society around the world will pay King Jesus tribute tomorrow when they shout, Happy New Year. It's 2019. This marvelous truth of the new beginning in Jesus, it will unfold throughout the 28 chapters in Matthew, we'll get a clear sense of, of what it means that the kingdom of heaven has come in Jesus. But Matthew wants the reader to, to know what to expect from the beginning. So in his very first sentence, he writes, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Now let's bring it, let's bring it home. Jesus not only ushered in the new beginning of the world, 2019 years ago, Jesus also continues to usher in new beginnings in each and every life that's willing to trust him. Jesus is not only the world's savior, but he's your savior if you let him. What do you need saved from in 2019? In what area of your life do you need a new beginning, a fresh start. Think about it. Is it your marriage or your relationship with a child? What could use retuning in 2019? Is there something about your daily routine, your prayer life, your physical body, something about your relationship to money or stress or fear? What do you need saved from in 2019? And friends, Christians need saving too. <laughs> in what area of your life do you need a new beginning, a fresh start? Friends, this is the good news. Jesus is God's proof that he is the God of new beginnings. Jesus, in whom history finds its second genesis, he's the God who rescues, the God who recreates, the God who renews and restores all things, including marriages and bodies, friendships and finances, workplaces and churches. So will you give yourself over to Jesus once more in 2019? Let him do his thing, his work of new beginnings. So again, I ask you and I ask myself, what do we need saved from in 2019? In what area of your life could you really use a new beginning? If you can answer those two questions honestly, I encourage you to turn them into a cry for God's help. If you do this, if you turn them into a prayer, then I believe 
that you are much, much further along than all of us who have instead chosen to adopt a New Year's resolution. Here's what I mean. New Year's resolutions, at least serious ones, often make us the heroes. I resolve to lose 20 pounds this year. I resolve to watch less TV and read more books. I resolve to go to church more often. But resolutions reside in the human will. And our wills are often too weak to sustain even the best of our intentions. And we are not heroes. God never asks us to be. However, when we turn it into a prayer, a prayer for God to give us a new beginning, a fresh start in some area of our life, then it's all completely different. Our prayers reside in God's will, and God wills to give us the abundant life of love that's found in Jesus. God will empower us by his spirit to do what we cannot do on our own. If we do this, if we pray for God to transform us in 2019, then at year, year's end, we'll realize that it's Jesus who's the hero. So I urge you and I urge myself and I urge all who want real change in the year 2019, the year of our Lord, Rely not on your own willpower, nor your own understanding. Rely on the power and wisdom of God made available in Jesus. Jesus is the expert in new beginnings, not us. So let us rely on Jesus this new year. Amen? Let's move on, but not too far. Right after the first four Greek words in the New Testament, literally translated the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ, comes the next four, which translate son of David, son of Abraham. Why do you suppose Matthew highlights David and Abraham here in his first sentence? He's going to list them in just a bit. He could have just waited, it seems. Yet something is so important here that Matthew feels compelled to draw our attention to it right at the beginning. Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What does it mean that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham? Just this. There are two great promises in the Old Testament. The first promise comes to, guess who? Abraham. God promises Abraham a descendant, someone in his family line, who would be a blessing for everyone. And this is a shockingly inclusive promise. Everyone, and I mean everyone, would be blessed by the descendant of Abraham that God would one day give to the family line. The second great promise came to, guess who? David. D God promises David a son who would be king forever. It's a shockingly eternal promise promise. Forever this king would reign. I mean forever. So here's what Matthew is doing. He concludes his thick first sentence by identifying Jesus as the one in whom all of God's promises are fulfilled. Jesus is the son of Abraham, which is to say that Jesus is the long-promised descendant of Abraham, who is going to be the one that's a blessing for everyone, including you. Not only that, 
But Jesus is the long-awaited son of David who would be king forever, including now. So this is how God answers God's ancient promises, by entering the world in the flesh of Jesus. For everyone, forever. No wonder the angel from on high calls this what? Good news of great joy for all people. The angel knew what Matthew would later unearth. Jesus is both the seed of universal blessing and the son of eternal royalty. But those are pretty lofty concepts for us to wrap our minds around. So, Matthew decides to illustrate what he's trying to communicate about Jesus' identity by giving us his family tree. In fact, a closer look at this family tree reveals that Matthew is actually very nitpicky in the names that he selects. He doesn't just do what we would do if we were putting together a family tree. He doesn't just look up historical data and then put it together with the goal of getting it right. Rather, he's making a point about who Jesus really is. He's the Savior for everyone, forever. So, we're going to dig into some of these names, these ancestors of Jesus. But first, I just I want us to talk a bit about genealogies in our own day, shall we? There's been a resurgence of interest in genealogies lately. Are any of you into this uh, genealogy work? All right, we got a few folks. Have you heard of Ancestry.com? You heard of this? Yeah, they've picked up on the fact that there's a renewed interest, and they're making big bucks because of it. Turns out, it's not genealogies that we find boring. It's just other people's genealogies that we find boring. We don't care much about the ancestry of others. It just sounds like a long list of names like I read. But most of us want to know at least something about our own family tree. Why? Because this is our bloodline. We want to discover our roots, where we came from. If we're related to anyone famous, maybe. Pastor Stephanie supposedly has an ancestor named Josiah Bartlett who signed the Declaration of Independence. I kid you not, that's what her... uh, her uncle says. Pretty cool, right? So here's how Ancestry.com advertises their product. And this, this advertisement, it tells us something about what people want more of in their lives. This new year, let Ancestry DNA help you discover meaning, heritage, identity, belonging, connections, surprise, culture, This new year, let Ancestry DNA help you discover you. That's what we all want more of, right? Meaning and identity, belonging and connections, a greater understanding of who in the world I am and why I do the things I do. In an age when so many of us are unsure what it all means, this thing called life, why not turn to our family tree to give us some meaning? In an age that finds many of us struggling with our identities, why not look for something true about ourselves through our ancestral line? This is an age in which we, we ask the questions like, who am I deep down? And what am I for? And where do I belong? Where do I fit in? Who are my people? These are the questions Ancestry.com hopes to answer for you. 
for only $75, limited time offer. Ends 12-31, 2018, exclusions apply. These are also the questions that the genealogy of Jesus answers. And not just for Jesus, but also for you. That's the reason Matthew includes it in his gospel. Who are you? Where do you belong? Who are your people? Jesus claims that you're his people and he's your people. (laughs) This genealogy, when we dig into it, we discover that Jesus as the son of Abraham means that Jesus is blessing everyone, including you. And Jesus as the son of David means that Jesus is the eternal king who gives eternal purpose and meaning even to you. That is, if you're willing to be a part of his family. So, let me tell you a bit about Jesus' family tree as Matthew writes it. And don't worry, I'm not going to touch on all of the names. (laughs) All 40, what, 48 of them? Is that right? 14 times 3? No, that's not 48. 42, thank you, thank you. Estimator, thank you. Not all 42 of them. There There are three sets of 14 generations, And each set teaches us something special about who God is. The first set teaches us God's mercy. The second teaches us God's judgment. And the third teaches us God's faithfulness. I didn't come up with that. That was the scholar, um, Dale Bruner, who brings that up. I'll just sort of cite my sources there. So we'll start with the first set. What does this first set of name tells us, tell us about God's mercy? Well, there are four names on this first list of Jesus' family tree that are surprising. In fact, they're scandalous, and I tried to bring this out somewhat exaggerate, uh, exaggeratingly when I read them. Do you know which four are so surprising? They're the four women, right? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. They're surprising because in the first century, one rarely finds the name of women included on a family tree. Lineage was traced only through the males, so it was unnecessary to include the names of women. And there was one important exception. You might choose to add a woman's name here or there if and only if that woman's name would somehow enhance the dignity of of the family line, somehow uh, enhance the reputation of your ancestry. That's what leads to the scandal in Matthew's list of Jesus' ancestors. The four women listed here would have brought shame on the family tree. Oddly enough, that's precisely why Matthew includes them. You see, what these four women all have in common is that they are all non-Jews. They are racially different from the rest of Jesus' lineage. Within Jesus' very Jewish family tree stand at least four non-Jewish women peering out among the leaves. Matthew includes them to highlight this son of Abraham part of Jesus' identity. Jesus is a blessing to everyone, and he means everyone. Even non-Jews are included in the family. Even women are included in the family. Even you are included in the family. 
If you read closely the story of these four women in the Old Testament, you'll discover something else they all share in common. They are all involved in uh, what we might call abnormal sexual behavior. (laughs) Tamar tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her by pretending to be a prostitute. Rahab is a prostitute by profession. Ruth plays the aggressor to win the favor of Boaz. And the wife of Uriah, who even Matthew seems embarrassed to name, Bathsheba, she's taken advantage of by King David when he sees her bathing on the roof. So what's the point in listing these four women? As the scholar Dale Bruner writes, it's to highlight the deep and wide mercy of God, a mercy that extends to both racial and moral outsiders. Do you ever feel like a religious outsider? Like you don't fit in because you're not good enough or because you look different or because you have a history you'd rather not share in public? If so, then you're exactly the type of person who Jesus is intentional to include in his family line. Jesus teaches us about the deep and wide mercy of God. A little later on in his gospel, chapter 9, verse 13, he says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew, before this teaching, Matthew gives us a warning about this Jesus and his family tree. Are these four women, these four women who are upheld as the new matriarchs in the new family of Jesus. This is all a part of the new beginning, the new Genesis, this mercy business. This is the new thing Jesus is doing. It's It's um, striking that the household names are absent. Sarah and Rebecca, Rachel and Leah. These were the matriarchs of the Jewish family, but they are conspicuously absent from the list. So we say bye-bye to them because that is the old way. But the new way, the new model, the new model of the matriarch is seen in Rahab and in Tamar. The new model matriarch in this new kingdom of Jesus is the outsider turned insider by the grace of Jesus. She is the once ashamed but now clothed with dignity through the Holy Spirit. She is the sinner turned saint on account of the loyal and unwavering love of God. Tamar and Rahab, Ruth and Bathsheba, and all the other women we will soon meet throughout the gospel who are transformed by their encounter with Jesus. This is all a part of the new beginning, thanks be to God. But what about the rest of the family tree? The first set, from Abraham to David, teaches us God's mercy, including the outsider into the family. The second set, from David to the exile, teaches us God's judgment. How so? In two ways. First, Matthew starts the second list by naming King David on top. But he ends the list by informing the reader that this same royal line has now been deported to Babylon. It's a journey from riches 
to rags that God's family takes in this second set of names. It's a path of downward mobility, and the reason they turn poor has everything to do with God's judgment. Now, if you want to read about each of these people, most of whom are kings of Israel and then Judah, you'd learn something about how God's judgment works. I get the idea as I read their stories that God's judgment is closely linked with God's love. To be more specific, it's the equality of God's love that leads to the necessity of judgment. It's the equality of God's love that leads to the necessity of judgment. As I read it, the God's judgment is the justice of a merciful father who loves all his children, but when one of those children hits another child, something needs to be done. So it's the equality of God's love for all of those children that leads to the necessity of judgment. The father gently yet firmly steps in to protect the abused, and in perfect wisdom he holds accountable the abuser, but he does not abandon the one who is judged, in this instance the bully child. He does not abandon the bully kings of Israel. He does not abandon the nation of Israel, even though they're judged and deported to Babylon. He does not abandon you either. Rather, God desires the child's repentance and ultimately the child's restoration to the family. God's judgment is the first step in God's plan for restoring the peace. It will be the last step if we refuse to cooperate. This plays out in our own life, too, I think. When we act contrary to God's good purposes, we often experience the destructiveness of these actions. God does not always protect us from feeling the force of these consequences. Therein lies God's judgment. Sin contains within itself its own punishment, does it not? And God's judgment is God's decision to allow us to feel it, to feel the sting of sin, the pain of poor choices, the consequences of our action. God permits this just like loving parents must with wayward children, but not forever. And God certainly takes no pleasure in watching us suffer, even when we're suffering under the weight of our own sin. Rather, God intends to use this pain to bring us back into relationship, to change our ways, to restore our connection. When we're off in the far country like the prodigal son, God the Father always wants to bring us back home. God's mercy and God's judgment. This leads us to the third set of names, which teaches us about God's faithful love, no matter what. The third set begins by repeating the harsh reality of the deportation to Babylon. He has to mention it twice. The deportation to Babylon, that's the exile, as we call it. This is God's judgment on a faithless nation. God lets them feel the sting of their sin. God withdraws his presence for a season, and they taste the consequences of their actions for a while. But it was never God's plan to leave them there. Rather, 
God intends all along to prepare for them the ultimate deliverer, the Messiah, from their very own family line, the son of David, who would usher in the new beginning. It's for them, even for the castaway Israel. It's for them. It's for everyone. As Brunner writes, just when the people of God thought everything had fallen apart, God started to put everything together again. In this way, God keeps the faith. God proves his faithfulness to the ancient promises. The promises to bless everyone with his eternal rule of love and justice. God keeps the promise. And he starts with unknown people like Jeconia, who was the father of Salatiel. <laughs> when God seemed silent, God was behind the scenes in these unknown people continuing to work his plan of deliverance down the family line. And finally, after a bunch of names that we pretty much know nothing about, after all of that, at the fullness of time, when the world was ripe for a new genesis, a man named Jacob, by God's grace, became the father of Joseph, who, by an even greater grace, became the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah, the hero, the deliverer. And this Jesus now calls out to you and me. Once you were not a people, but now you are my people. Even if your own mother forsakes you, I will take you in and I will never forsake you. You are the adopted child of my Father, whose mercy is deep and wide. And I, Jesus, am not ashamed to call you brother, sister. I myself have purchased your place in the family tree with my blood. This is your bloodline now, so act like it. This is where you belong. Welcome to the new beginning of an eternity of love in the family of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.